This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. If you've thought about communism in the Depression years of the 1930s, you might have had the same reaction that Bigger Thomas does in the 1940 book Native Son by Richard Wright. He looked at the building into which she had gone. It was old and unpainted. There were no lights in the windows or doorway. Maybe she was meeting her sweetheart? If that was all, then things would straighten out. But what if she had gone to meet those communists? And what were communists like anyway? Was she one? What made people communists? He remembered seeing many cartoons of communists in newspapers, and always they had flaming torches in their hands and wore beards and were trying to commit murder or set things on fire. People who acted that way were crazy. All he could recall having heard about communists was associated in his mind with darkness, old houses, people speaking in whispers, and trade unions on strike. And this was something like it. But for a lot of African Americans, including actually Wright himself, communism wasn't so scary, especially during the darkest days of the Depression. That's when African Americans in New York City and across the country were sympathizing with and becoming members of the Communist Party in pretty substantial numbers. Last week on the show, we began a conversation with Fordham History and African American Studies professor Mark Nazan about communists in Harlem during the Great Depression. This week on Fordham Conversations, we are going to continue that conversation with an eye toward the artists who made friendly with the party in the 1930s and the longer-term repercussions of the Red Menace in the black community at that time. Also later on the show today, we will get to know one part of Harlem a little bit better and look at what some in the neighborhood view as a more modern menace, gentrification. But first, let's continue our conversation with Mark Nason. One of the things that Nazan talks about in his book, which is called Communists in Harlem During the Depression and is out from University of Illinois Press, is the celebrity culture of communism during the Depression. I asked him about that. A number of well-known black artists and authors like Richard Wright and Langston Hughes and Paul Robeson were involved with the Communist Party in one way or another. Tell me about their experiences and the complications that they encountered. It's very complicated being an artist or a writer and being connected to a political group, especially a political group that likes to tell people what they should think. On the one hand, in a racist society, if you're black, you don't have a lot of outlets for your work. You know, most publishers won't publish you. Your opportunities to educate yourself and get top of the line criticism, editing, and exposure for your work is not very great. So when you have this organization which embraces you and also gives you contacts and outlets for publication, you know, it's pretty attractive. But then when they start telling you what to say and what to to write, you know, it can challenge your sense of a writer's integrity. And I think that's what happened. People were drawn in by opportunities that they had here that they wouldn't have had elsewhere, but then ran headlong into the idea that they were going to be told what to write, what to perform, and so forth. So in the case of Richard Wright and Langston Hughes, in the case of Richard Wright, he had a very open break with the Communist Party. In the case of Langston Hughes, he just sort of drifted away. Now, Paul Robeson is an interesting case because Robeson never breaks. You know, a lot of scholars have pondered, why didn't he break? And it's, it's, it's an intriguing question, but some of it may have been 
his rage at the United States was so great that he didn't want to give them the give the American racists the satisfaction of recanting something which he had embraced. So he bit the bullet and stayed in, even at the the cost of his career. You know, you could say it was noble stubbornness, or you could say it was you know, being complicit in Stalin's crimes. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, debate about. But Robeson is the only person who stayed. Of the great writers, you know, Ellison, Wright, um, Langston Hughes, they all drifted away or, or broke. Robeson stayed in. He's the, or he and Du Bois. Du, du Bois also remained associated with the Communist Party, but some of it was sort of rage at what they saw as American hypocrisy. What right do you have to criticize the Soviet Union for X, Y, and Z when you've done so many things to, to my people? Maybe you should explain a little bit about uh, Paul Robeson's life and career path. Okay. Paul Robeson was arguably the most talented African-American of uh, the 20th century and quite possibly the most multi-talented person. He went to Rutgers University, where he's valedictorian of the class, played four sports, was considered one of the top 10 football players of his generation, went on to Columbia Law School, got a law degree from Columbia, played professional football, and then began a career as an actor and a concert singer, began in, in acting in Eugene O'Neill's plays and became the best-known black actor of his generation. But some people remember him best for his singing. His singing career began with, uh, with American Negro spirituals, and he had this incredible bass voice. And then he learned 13 languages and became someone who performed the folk songs of the world along with... American Negro spirituals. In 1929, he went into exile in Europe, fed up with the racism. He couldn't stay at the, at hotels. He, you know, he couldn't sit in the theaters he performed in. You know, he couldn't get jobs. He, it was one humiliation after another. So he went to live in England, and then he went to visit the Soviet Union and was so impressed by what he thought was the absence of race prejudice that he began to embrace that particular social system and then returned to the United States and then became, in 1939, not only the best-known black actor in both plays and movies, he became the single highest-paid concert performer in the United States. But in addition to that, half of his speaking and singing engagements he donated free to labor and radical organizations. He was the best-known black man in the world. He was the best-known black American. And then by his refusal to repudiate the Soviet Union and American communism, his passport was taken away. He couldn't perform on radio or when television when it came out. Most concert halls wouldn't allow him to sing. He became an exile in his own country. His trophies were taken out of the uh, trophy case. He became a non-person. People were put under suspicion if they had Paul Robeson records in their apartment. So it was, it was a remarkable story of this person of extraordinary talent who 
made a fateful choice and became a non-person in the land of his birth. Pretty powerful story. Let me ask you about somebody who did break with the party, who is Richard Wright. One of the first books that I read when I started college was Native Son, and I remember the portrayal of the communists in that book. You know, Bigger, I've long wanted to go into those houses, she said, pointing to the dark, tall apartment buildings looming to either side of them, and just see how your people live. You know what I mean? I've been to England, France, and Mexico, but I don't know how people live ten blocks from me. We know so little about each other. I just want to see. Never in my life have I been inside of a Negro home. Yet they must live like we live. They're human. There are 12 million of them. They live in our country, in the same city with us. Her voice trailed off wistfully. What was the reaction by people in the Communist Party to that book? They were were in a very difficult position because Ben Davis who was the, um, at that time, the most powerful African-American public leader of the Communist Party and also did a lot of their reviews. He wrote a review of the book praising the book for its powerful portrait of racism but criticizing its portrait of communism as being narrow and overly wooden. At this point, Wright was had not broken with the Communist Party, so the party was trying to keep him in the fold, but at the same time criticize him. It was they were playing a balancing game. It was another year or two before he would break. So they were giving him more leeway than they would normally give somebody. He was not flatly denounced for writing that book, which is itself is a very interesting phenomenon. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are bringing you this week part two of my conversation with Fordham History and Urban Studies professor Mark Nason. Nason's the author of the book Communists in Harlem During the Depression, which is out from University of Illinois Press. Nason's also the principal investigator for the Bronx African American History Project, which gathers the oral histories of people in the Bronx of African descent. Later on the show, we'll hear more about living in Harlem today. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Mark Nason. I asked him why he chose to write about Harlem in the 30s and what we don't know about Harlem at that time that we ought to. Harlem at this time, you know, people write about the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s and all the writers. That What you had in the, in the 30s was the political version of the, of the Harlem Renaissance. This is where political activism of the modern kind that used protest techniques rather than lobbying you know, and legislation. This is where you had the picket lines to get a store to hire blacks. This is where you had hunger marches to get, like, home relief agencies to give aid to clients. This is where you had people from the Garvey movement, people from the churches, people from labor unions arguing about, 
you know, what strategy is best to help black people get a, a more favorable place in American society. It was a place where there was a lot of experimentation with new ideas about how to achieve racial equality and social justice. And it was filled with activism and contentiousness. And the Harlem Renaissance was an elitist movement. It was a movement of writers, of artists, of musicians. What was going on in Harlem in the 30s was, you know, thousands of people marching. And it's yet this is also something which shaped the America that we live in now. Now, you say that a lot of writing about black participation in the Communist Party has been about the party as sort of an alien presence in black protest and also is using genuine grievances within the black community to forward the cause of communist organizing. You take a different tack, though, right? I think that on one level, that's true, that there were people in the Communist Party who sought to use black grievances to advance their particular agenda, whether it was defending the Soviet Union or building a communist party. But there were also black people who said, let me use this organization to get some of what my community needs. So it wasn't like the black people who entered this were naive. They knew that they were making a bargain with something that was different. And it was kind of a give and take. And they weren't being like puppets on a string. People enter um, political relationships, I think, very often with their eyes open. They don't always go in like love at the first sight. They enter cautiously. They, they put conditions on it. And I think that characterized the relationship here. When push came to shove, Harlem was a stronger community as a result of communist influence. It wasn't weakened by it. It wasn't undermined. It was strengthened. And a lot of people who went through that movement grew as a result and went on to do amazing things after they left. There were the tragedies like Paul Robeson, but there were also the people who achieved great success after they left the Communist Party. There were people who went through the Communist Party as sort of a generational experience. Now, you wrote this book a few years ago, and now most of the work you do is focused on the African-American history of the Bronx. How does this work that you did in the 80s relate to what you're doing now? You know what I think? The, the biggest thing is that I learned to listen to what people say about their lives rather than what writers say they should say. When I entered this, doing the research for the book Communists in Harlem, I went out and interviewed a lot of people. Sometimes I interviewed them three or four or five times. And some of what they said, you know, was in no book that I had ever seen and contradicted a lot of what I saw in books. And I just learned that, you know, you got to listen. And that's what I think that I brought into this project. When I started work in the Bronx African American History Project, the pretty much the prevailing narrative of black life in the Bronx was the Bronx was Irish, Italian, and Jewish. It was a wonderful place to live. Then blacks and Puerto Ricans moved in. The Bronx burned. And now it's a mostly, you know, Latino borough. It was as though African Americans had no presence other than as agents of destruction. And when I started actually interviewing people, they talked about how people moved from um, Harlem to the Bronx to find better schools, to find better housing, to find better shopping, 
and actually had that experience for 20 years. So it was like a whole portion of people's lives was erased by the way people were writing about Bronx history. And I think the same thing happened. You erased the agency of the black people who were in the Communist Party. You made them seem like puppets in a string rather than strong-willed people who were trying to deal with very difficult problems and were willing to work with this particular organization, which offered them aid. So, you know, that's the thing. You know, I, I let people tell their stories. And then I try to, as honestly as I can, connect those stories to larger historical narratives. The thing I'm proudest of about communists in Harlem is 25 years later, there's been no book that's written which repudiates the work that I did in this. And and that's, I think, partly because I, I no, not only did my homework and looked at every available document, I really tried to listen to people. And I didn't come in with this preconceived conception. How does black communism in the 30s relate to black radicalism today? Can we see some roots? Gee, today there isn't much in the way of black radicalism. I think that there isn't much in the way of radicalism, period, in the United States. I think that one of the very different things is that consumerism has so entered into people's minds and imaginations that it makes it very difficult to rebel in any systematic way against the way this society is run. And consumer society, while it was developing in the 20s, hadn't reached into and, you know, transformed and shaped the way people thought as much as it does now. I think we're in a whole new ballgame. And I don't think that the categories that I used in, in, in writing about that subject help very much in understanding where people are today politically. Uh, this stuff is really interesting, especially if you're interested in New York City history or political history. But communism is not the kind of political force that it once was. How is this book and this topic relevant today? Why should we care about this thing that happened in the 30s? Well, I think that to me the message is it's pretty sobering to realize that American society was so profoundly caught up in this ideology of white supremacy that it took an organization that was, you know, created in another country and to some degree controlled from another country to lead an anti-racist movement that we couldn't of our own initiative generate this movement in our own country says how brainwashed we are by, you know, and, and we're by white supremacy. And that's a scary, like, what ha all these immigrants come to the United States and they buy in to the notion that they their ability to rise in the society is based on how far they get away from black people um, and how much they accept the idea that this is a white man's country whether it's the Irish, Italians, Jews, Poles, everybody buys in. And here's this organization comes and says, no, by buying in, you lock yourselves in this subordinate position and look at what's happening to you now. I mean, I think to me, that's a story that we've got to look at, you know, to always take race in America very seriously 
including in ways it's inside us that we don't even realize. Well, Mark Nazan, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. This was this was a really interesting conversation. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Mark Nazan's book is Communists in Harlem During the Depression, and it's out from University of Illinois Press. If you'd like to know more about the Bronx African American History Project, you can find them on the web at fordham.edu slash B-A-A-H-P. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, we will take a look at New York City's tree planting plans. Cityscape with George Bodarki this morning at 7.30 here on WFUV. But first, in our discussion last week, Mark Nazan described the problems that faced Harlem during the Depression as being about equal to what the rest of the city was going through, times two. As we know, though, the neighborhood was also possessed of a cultural richness that's kept the phrase Harlem Renaissance in the language until today. But what about today? In this piece from Brooklyn College Radio, Spanish Harlem resident Jason Gonzalez describes some of the neighborhood's triumphs and challenges as he sees them. ¿Qué pasa y bienvenido a mi barrio? What's up and welcome to my hood? It's fitting that I say this in two languages because I'm from Spanish Harlem. We're nestled just east of Harlem and due north of Yorkville, the wealthiest neighborhood in the city. We don't boast of lush rolling hills or pristine sandy beaches. Heck, we can't really guarantee clean air. Spanish Harlem has the dubious distinction of having the world's highest rates of asthma. Incredibly, the residents of El Barrio have higher asthma rates than those of Calcutta, India. Now that's whoa. Indigenous wildlife is limited to the usual pigeons, sparrows, and seagulls, with crows and mice, rats, and mean cats. As far as the eye can see, brown brick buildings pierce the New York sky, the floor design of city master builder Robert Moses. East Harlem has the highest concentration of public housing projects in the entire city. The site of the PJs is ubiquitous. Junk and treasure. One man's junk is another man's treasure. Behind the walls of the brown buildings dwell brown faces intent on creating their own enclave. A place far from home, but closest to the heart. So they built casitas and cuchifritos, and they drove caddies. They introduced us to salsa and sofrito, to goya beans and fine rums. Any Sunday was reminiscent of Fat Tuesdays on Bourbon Street, the festive atmosphere epitomized by the rhythmic sounds of congas and guidos and cuas. The parks on the corners provided the perfect venue for live music and dancing. The pleasant smells of Sunday dinners wafting in the air. Mmm, arroz con pollo. Religion. Food to fill the belly and religion to fill the soul. These pioneers from Puerto Rico partied on Saturday and prayed on their Sabbath. But different strokes for different folks. So Jesus and Dios ain't for all of us. They came as Catholics and Pentecostals, brujas and santeros, iglesias for the Christians and botanicas for those who were steeped in mysticism, black magic and voodoo. They prayed to Chango, the African deity, they all pray for a better day. Mayors. So a neighborhood evolved with the influx of migrants from La Isla del Encanto, all lured with hopes of finding work in post-World War II New York City, when LaGuardia was mayor, and Koch and Dinkins too. Soon it became the epicenter for Puerto Rican culture in the city. Soon Machito had a square on 111th Street, 
and Tito Puente had a way on 110th Street, and Luis Muñoz Marin had a boulevard on 116th Street. Here they play the annual old-timers tournament, where sweet swinging stickballers and their scions swatted out for the sport supremacy. Home to Hector Macho Camacho, one-time world boxing champion. 103rd Street and 2nd Avenue is the birthplace of the Iron Horse, New York Yankee great Lou Gehrig. 106th Street and Park Avenue, home of the Graffiti Hall of Fame, El Barrio's version of the lure. The concrete walls of Jackie R. Robinson Educational Complex serve as the canvas for those masters of American hieroglyphs, bubbler block, b-boys or toys, they all flock to the Acropolis of graffiti. So are you hungry? How about some authentic Puerto Rican food fit for any palate? Check out La Ponda Boricua. No Taco Bells here. Real Mexican food tempts tummies with tacos and chimichangas. Italian food? Spanish Harlem is home to the exclusive and prestigious Reyes located on 111th Street and Pleasant Avenue, where only A-list celebrities and politicals reserve the right to manja in Spanish Harlem's Little Italy. The Feast of Mount Carmel is El Barrio's version of San Gennaro, where sausage and peppers, cannolis and calamari are devoured with sinful delight. Change. But change is in the winds. It's not been subtle either, and this new reality has thrust a new word into my lexicon, gentrification. See, no one cared when crack hit and families split, when liquor stores offered a bottle and a dream, when burnt buildings served as heroin havens, when bullets and bodies littered the asphalt, their smoke and stench silenced justice. Serve and protect was conspicuous by their absence. Police concern. Now the police show concern. They patrol the streets of Spanish Harlem, eager to enforce quality of life crimes they seemed so cavalier about enforcing just a few years ago. That isn't the only change. I have noticed a gradual shift in neighborhood demographics. Now we see more and more outsiders moving into our neighborhood, those with absolutely no connection to the neighborhood, eager to transform our barrio into the next Williamsburg or Tribeca. They have arrived in droves, lattes in tow, seeking to repopulate areas where decades earlier a white flight occurred. But it seems the white America is not so eager to settle in the burbs like their relatives of yesteryear. Money-making Manhattan is living up to its moniker. Rents have skyrocketed while unemployment has increased in Spanish Harlem. The residents who consider this their home share an uneasy existence with their new neighbors. The residents realize that they are slowly being displaced See, it isn't lost on anyone's mind what the cost of a one-bedroom apartment has ballooned to, or how Costco has designs on the old neighborhood in Pleasant Avenue, or how developers build at breakneck speeds, and how existing owners refurbish, hoping to lure new tenants who wear Che Guevara t-shirts, but disconnected from the Hispanic reality. Where are the low-cost units in these new luxury high-rises? Welcome to Harlem, where a nickel costs a dime. Yeah, but the rent is still high. Harlem, home of the hustler. But soon, he too will be hustled out of the neighborhood. The legacy of gangsters like Alpo Martinez will be replaced with the muscle of gentrification and the sweeping powers of eminent domain. So will the neighborhood change into a yuppie enclave like those on Manhattan's west side, replete with the Starbucks 
and an upscale boutique on nearly every corner? I hope not. We overcame dilapidation, but the new enemy is gentrification. That piece from Brooklyn College Radio, produced by Bashir Najjar. Thanks also today to Tara Anderson for being the inner voice of Bigger Thomas. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show is now available as a podcast. If you're interested in subscribing or if you're just looking for some more information, you can go to our website, wfuv.org, and click on the word podcast. You can also listen online in our audio archives. And if you'd like to drop us a line with any questions or comments or just, you know, general information about whatever you feel like saying, our email address is Conversations at wfuv.org. We would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.